I don't want to turn uh, to two places in God's Word, um, probably two sections of the Word that are familiar with many of us. Uh, but first, I want to look together at Ezekiel chapter 37. Ezekiel chapter 37 and the story of the Valley of the Dry Bones. And then I want to turn over together to Acts chapter 8 and read about the story of Simon the Magician. So those are the two passages I'd like to read and use to think about uh, baptism this evening. If you're not sure what they have to do with baptism, hopefully I'll make that clear as we go on. But um, Ezekiel chapter 37, beginning at verse 1, and then Acts chapter 8, verses 13 through 24. So Ezekiel 37, beginning at verse 1, and let's pay careful attention for this is God's own word. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones, and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord." So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them. And they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you and you shall live. And I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it, declares the Lord. Um, A wonderful story there. And then let's turn over to Acts chapter 8 and think about the story of Simon the magician. Uh, We want to read from Acts chapter 8, particularly beginning at verse 13 uh, through 24. But to get the whole story, let's start at verse 9. So Acts chapter 8, beginning at verse 9 and reading through verse 24. 
But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Thus far the reading of God's word. May he bless it to us. Um, Two different passages about the work that is connected with the work of baptism. And that's what we've been thinking about together. Uh, We were thinking last time we met together about baptism and about some of its implications. Uh, We talked about the proper meaning of baptism, to think about the outward sign of water, Uh, that is picturing to us an inward grace that's being signified, the washing of our souls by the blood and spirit of Christ. Um, We thought about how that external sign becomes united to that inward grace by the sacramental union that God affects spiritually. God brings these things together so that we receive God's grace through these means that he has appointed. Uh, One Reformed theologian said that we, where the sacrament is received in faith, The grace of God accompanies it. And that's a good way to think about the sacraments. Where it's received in faith, the gift of God, the grace of God accompanies it. Um, So we talked about that, the proper meaning of baptism. We talked about the proper mode of baptism, that it's to be pure water applied. Um, While it's okay to be immersed, it's also okay to be sprinkled so long as the picture is there of washing. So we understand that just as truly as we are washed by the water, so truly We are washed by the blood and spirit of Christ. Um, So our minds and hearts are focused on that purifying work of God uh, that he does for us by Christ Jesus. We talked about the proper recipients of baptism. Who should be baptized? Um, We remember from Romans 10 verse 9, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Uh, Believers should be baptized. Now, we also talked about the fact that their children should be baptized in keeping with those covenant promises, uh, remembering the proper ground of baptism, that it's a sign of covenant initiation. 
Um, and why should children be included in that sign? Well, because they are part of the covenant people of God. That's how God has always worked his covenant people, through believers and their children. Uh, we looked at the continuity of the old and new covenants um, and talked about how the promises that were made in the old continue in the new. That the reason the children were included in the old covenant is still the reason that they are included in the new covenant. Uh, that the covenant with Abraham was a spiritual covenant. A covenant of people, to be sure, and descended from Abraham, but a spiritual people. That the true children of Abraham were the people who shared Abraham's faith. And that these images, these signs were never meant to be simply physical realities or ethnic realities. They were always meant to be spiritual realities. Um, That the true children of Abraham are those who share Abraham's faith. The true people of God are those who follow after their father Abraham. That's always how God has spoken about his people. A holy nation, a holy people chosen by him. And in the Old Testament, the sign of covenant initiation coming into that people was circumcision. And in the New Testament, baptism has replaced that as the sign which identifies us as belonging to the people of God. Um, And so just as circumcision came to believing Abraham and his children as a sign and seal of the covenant promises, which were to be received by grace through faith, so in the new covenant, it still happens. The baptism comes to believers and their children as a sign and seal of the promises of the covenant, which are received by grace through faith. We do this on the basis of God's command, uh, that those who belong to him are to be set aside by that sign. In the old covenant, it was circumcision to believers and their children. In the new covenant, it's baptism to believers and their children. Because Jesus said the covenant belongs to them. Peter said the promises belong to them. And Paul said that they are holy. Um, And so those realities are signified in baptism and come to believers and their children. And so tonight we want to talk a little bit more about that ground of baptism because that can be a hard thing for people to understand why children are included Um, because someone might look to something I've already said today and say now wait a minute now how is that true for children because you said that where the sacrament is received in faith there the grace of God accompanies it and they would say surely you're not saying that those little infants that you bring forward to baptize can have faith um, you know, and we could, we could spend a lot of time in the church service asking them questions. Um, you know, could try asking them question 21 of the Heidelberg Catechism and say, you know, what is true faith? Um, I wouldn't expect an answer. Um, and so we, we can wrestle with that, and some people can have a problem with that. Why would you baptize a child who you know does not have faith? Especially if you're going to say that where the sacrament is received in faith, the grace of God accompanies it. Does that mean the grace of God does not accompany uh, the baptism of children? Those raise some difficult questions, don't they? Um, And I wanted to take some time for us to think about what God's Word tells us and how we can answer some of these questions. So very simply tonight, what I want to do is confront that difficult question and try to resolve that difficult question. So those are my two points tonight, confronting the difficulty and resolving the difficulty. Um, want to see these things and talk about them so that we properly understand them. And one thing that we have to understand right from the beginning 
is that not everyone who receives the sign and seal of the covenant of grace is a partaker of that covenant by faith. That's always been true of the signs and seals as they have been administered. That not everyone who receives the sign and seal is a partaker of that covenant by faith. That was certainly true in the Old Testament from the very beginning. Uh, when Abraham circumcised his two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. Isaac was a child of faith. Isaac is a child of promise. Ishmael was not. There at the beginning, at the very beginning, you had the sign administered to people, one of whom became a believer, one of whom put his faith and trust in God, and one who never did. Uh, They both received the sign. And that continued as these generations unfolded. That was not a one-off for Isaac and his brother. That happened again with, with Isaac's children, with Jacob and Esau. We know from the testimony of Scripture that Jacob was a member of the covenant by faith. He's held out as an example of faith in Hebrews eleven twenty one. We're told in Romans nine thirteen that he was loved by God, uh, that God loved Jacob. And Paul there is only quoting from Malachi 1, 2, and 3. It's very clear that God loved Jacob. Jacob received the sign, and it became a life of faith in him. On the contrary, Esau also was circumcised, and he grew up to hate God. Um, He hated God and treated as a common thing the birthright that was his. He still received the sign, but he was not a partaker That's why we read Acts chapter 8. There we have someone who seems to believe, who seems to receive the sign, but does not seem to have any part in the people of God. We're told that Simon believed and was baptized in Acts chapter 8, verse 13. He was one who had baptism, but he had not the Spirit of Christ. He had not a true and saving faith. He had a kind of belief. Uh, but not a true belief, not a true faith. And that becomes clear from the apostolic testimony of the Apostle Peter um, as he witnesses and warns this man. Um, You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. He had received the sign, but his heart was not right. He was not a believer not a minister of God's grace to be sure and not even a partaker in it. Um, And he was still in the clutches of unforgiven sin. He still needed to be called to repentance. We read in verse 22, Repent therefore of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. Um, He is still in the bonds of iniquity. Peter says in verse 23, Um, he was baptized, but he never believed. And we're not sure that he ever did. Um, The the tradition of the church remembers Simon. Sometimes maybe you've heard him called Simon Magus or Simon the Magician. He's remembered in church history as as a violent opponent of the gospel. Now, whether that tradition is fair or not, I don't know. Now, scripture doesn't tell us that. For a fact, and we certainly hope that he heard the word of Peter and the prayers of Peter on behalf of Simon were effective. 
that God heard his prayer. But this is a reminder to us that whether you are talking about believers and whether you're talking about children, just because someone has received the sign uh, doesn't mean they've received faith, doesn't mean they've put their faith and trust in, in, in God. And so that difficulty comes to us whether you're talking about children or whether you're talking about adults, that, that difficulty still presents itself. And so how do we try to resolve that difficulty? Um, we have to confront that together. And we recognize that people rightly received these signs, um, even though they did not possess the reality of them. It wasn't wrong for them to baptize Simon. They were baptizing him on the best information that they had. He seemed to believe. Philip preached the word to him as an evangelist, and he seemed to believe it, and they administered the sign to him, that there are people who it's not wrong for them to have received the sign. Uh, they rightly receive it, even though they didn't, pa- didn't possess the reality of it. It was not wrong for Abraham to baptize Ishmael, I mean to circumcise Ishmael. Um, it wasn't wrong for him to do that. He was following the command of God. It wasn't wrong for Isaac to circumcise Esau. It wasn't wrong for Simon to be baptized. Um, and we know that throughout the church, there's been that sad reality of people who turn away. Um, the Apostle John talked about that in 1 John two, nineteen. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. I think we can assume everyone that John is talking about there were baptized. Um, they'd received the sign. And if they seemed to be part of the people of God, going out from the people of God... Was it right to baptize them? Well, surely. Um, And the same is true of our children. If we baptize them and they grow up to turn away, we would still want to say that it was right for us to baptize them. Um, Because we have to make a distinction between the secret operations and purposes of God, His electing purposes for people, and His openly commanded and divinely instituted method of administering His covenant in the world. We are not privy to the electing purposes of our God. Um, And if we had to baptize on the basis of only baptize the elect, we would never baptize anyone um, because we could never be sure of that. That is not what God calls us to do. He doesn't call us to operate under things that are beyond our ability to perceive. Because we recognize that as God works in the hearts and souls of believers, there is something that happens that's beyond our ability to trace out. There is a sovereign operation of the Holy Spirit that is going on in the the lives of people who come to salvation that is beyond our ability to find out. Um, What I mean by that is this, where does salvation begin Does it begin with my response to God's call? Or does it begin before that? Does it begin before that? And I think the testimony of Scripture is that it does begin before that. It begins by that mysterious, ineffable, regenerating work of the Holy Spirit when He takes someone who is dead and makes them alive. Salvation actually begins before we believe. We are responding to the work that the Spirit has already 
begun in us. That's what God is doing in the lives of his people. When we, when we come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we realize that there's a whole host of things that has happened before that. Um, or for your perspective, before that. Right? That there's something that happened before the foundation of the world. In eternity, the Father set his love on people and chose them from before the foundation of the world to be saved. And we can try to we could try to trace that out if we wanted. Why did he choose one person and not another? It's solely out of what's in him. We couldn't get to the root of that if we wanted to know. It's out of a God's abundant goodness that he chose anyone, but we can say for those who've come to faith in Christ, to saving faith in Christ, that there was a whole process that began before the foundation of the world. That was carried forward in time and history. So the Lord Jesus Christ came to die to accomplish the salvation that one day the Holy Spirit would come and apply in the hearts of believers. And the beginning of that application of redemption to our hearts begins with that renewing work of the Holy Spirit, that secret operation of the Spirit that begins when He calls us and makes us new, makes us live so that we can hear Him when He responds. Um, I would love to be able to talk to Ezekiel and ask him the question, what was it like to be called to preach to a bunch of dry bones? Um, I would love to know his inner monologue, that moment that that word came to him. And then he stood before that valley filled with dry bones and began his sermon. Listen, bones, time for you to live. The Lord is going to bring you to life. It must have seemed a very strange thing to do. Um, it must have seemed a very strange thing to do. And it must have only been matched by the strangeness of that to all of a sudden hear the rattling of the bones as the bones come together. We still have songs about that. I'll spare you my singing. But we have songs about the bones that come together and then the bones came together and then the tendons came on and the muscles came on and the flesh comes on them. And they are no longer dry bones. They're, they're bodies but they still don't live, right? That's not the end of the story. They, they need another word spoken. They need the breath to come. They need the Spirit to come. And when the Spirit breathes on them, then they stand up, an exceedingly great army. That's when they come to life. They don't come to life without the Spirit breathing into them. And, and this is such a wonderful picture for us because it reminds us that God has to do both the enlivening and the enabling for us to respond to his voice. Because it seems so silly to preach to dry bones. Except that by the power of God, the dry bones live and become alive by the Spirit of God breathing on them. We are really no different, right? There might have been a time in each of our lives where we were walking around dead in sin and trespass. And the Lord came to someone who was dead and spoke 
and suddenly you heard the voice of your God. And you began to live. And you began to follow. There are some of us here who can trace really clearly when that moment happened in their lives. Um, There's some of us, by God's grace, who always grew up hearing the voice of God in our ears. And don't know a time where we didn't know the Lord Jesus Christ. But whether you were always hearing His voice as one who was alive. Or whether you can remember when you were dead and heard his voice and lived, that word had to be spoken to the dead and made them live. That had to happen in all of us. That's why we talk about calling and regeneration together. Um, It's hard for us to separate the two because I needed to be made to live before I could hear and follow. And I couldn't hear and follow until I was made to live. But those things can't be separated. We distinguish them, but we can't really separate them because we recognize that is the awesome work that God does in bringing the dead to life so that they can hear and follow. Um, It is awesome, not just in the Southern California sense of the word awesome, but in the true living sense of that word. It is something awesome that God does when he causes the dead to come to life. It's the Spirit alone who can do that. He alone can be that breath to blow on those who are dead and make them live. Um, and, we, and we see that going forth throughout Scripture when God does that. It, it is an awesome thing. When the Holy Spirit operates to apply that word in a saving way to make people live and to call them to himself... They spring up and they follow. Just like that valley of dry bones. Um, Think of Acts chapter 13, verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. All these people who had been appointed from before, before the foundation of the world, that that moment the Spirit made them live. And they believed in God. Um, Paul said, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. There are people who hear it and say, what foolishness, who could believe that? And there are people who the Spirit is at work in, and when they hear that, they said, that's the Savior I have to follow. That's the Lord, I have to leave everything and follow Him. That's a work that only the Holy Spirit can do. And it's a wonderful work because the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable, Paul says. Once God does that work, He will never go backward again. Once we've been called, we will be effectively called and will follow because we've been made new. We can never go back to being what we were before. There's no return to dry bones for those who've been brought to life in the Lord Jesus Christ. They live and they go on living. They live because of the Spirit of God at work in them. We've been permanently changed. I love how the theologian Louis Burkhoff puts it, that regeneration is that act of God by which the principle of the new life is implanted in man And the governing disposition of the soul is made holy. 
New life is implanted in us by the Holy Spirit, and suddenly the governing disposition of our lives is no longer unholy, but holy. Because the Spirit has changed us. It's a fundamental change. It's an instantaneous change. It's not something that happens gradually. Right? Those bones, when they were formed into human beings, they went from being not living to living when the breath blew on them. And, and Ezekiel could have seen the difference when they were fully formed bodies without life and suddenly a great army that lived. There was a fundamental change. In an instant, they were changed by the spirit and breath of God blowing life into them and making them live. And it changed everything forever. That's what happens when we are regenerated. That's why we can't trace that work back exactly. I can see the effects of it in my life. I can see the effects of it when I put my faith and trust in Jesus, when I can see the outworking of that change in the disposition of my soul that I no longer desire to live just for myself but live for my Savior and for my neighbor, that there is a change in how I live. But if I were to try to trace back and find out exactly when God did it, it would kind of be a fool's errand. I can only trace its effects. I can't really get back to that cause. And I say that because a lot of people have been troubled in the church by trying to go back and try to discern, am I regenerate? And try to find out, can I, can I track that moment when God brought me from death to life? That's a fool's errand. We know it by its effects. Well, that's what Jesus taught us about the teaching of God's Spirit's work. The wind blows where it wishes, Jesus said. And you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. You can see the effects. Um, You can see what the Spirit does, but it's hard to trace out when exactly that work happens. Uh, They're so far beyond us, we can't hope to perceive them. And that's why God does not tell us to administer the signs and seals based on those things that are beyond our ability to trace out. He tells us to administer the signs and seals of His grace in a way that we can understand and follow. uh, So that we can do it on the basis of the things we can observe and the basis of the things that we can know. So we can't perceive what God is doing in the hearts and minds of a believer any more than we can perceive what God is doing in the hearts and minds of an infant. Um, But we can follow His command. Because people will often say, well, why would you, you know, our Baptist friends would say to us, well, why would you baptize a child? They can't believe. And I would want to say, that's true. They can't believe, but salvation starts further back than belief. It starts with the regenerating, recalling work of the Holy Spirit. And you have to say to them, is a child beyond the reach of the Holy Spirit? Can God not already be working in an infant by His Spirit, preparing the way for the faith that will one day be offered? And if someone was tempted to say, well, God doesn't work like that, that's exactly what the, Spirit, what the Holy Scripture says God does do. What did Jeremiah say in Jeremiah 1 verse 5? Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. 
I appointed you a prophet to the nations. God says that about Jeremiah before he was born. God was already at work. My favorite example when people say to me, well, you know, infants can't do that sort of thing. Um, You have to wait till they put their faith in God. I always will say to my Baptist friends, well, think about John the Baptist. Um, Because what was true of John the Baptist? When he was in his mother's womb, he leapt for joy. Right? He leapt for joy when, he, when Elizabeth was pregnant with John the Baptist and she heard Mary's greeting. John the Baptist leapt in her womb for joy, God's Word tells us. Uh, now that's not reading the tea leaves and trying to read into it. That's exactly what Scripture says. He jumped for joy when he heard the greeting of Mary and knew that the Lord was coming. You see, we're, we're arrogant if we say, well, the Holy Spirit can't work in children. Uh, don't, tell, don't tell us what the Holy Spirit can do. Uh, don't presume to limit the work of the Spirit. Um, but he's not saying, try to figure out if I'm at work in these children and then baptize them. He says, I can be at work in them, but you need to know that they're part of my covenant people. That's the basis on which you baptize them. God doesn't ask us to make judgments based on his secret saving work. Um, He gives us a standard that we as fallen people can apply in an imperfect world. And he says, here is a sign that is for members of the covenant. And who are the members of the covenant? Believers and their children. As it was in the Old Testament, it still is in the New. Those who make a credible profession of faith in God the way Abraham did, and those who are children of believers, as Abraham's children were. And that notion of believers and their households was not just true in the Old Testament, it continues through in the New Testament. In Acts 16, we read about the baptism of Lydia and her household. We read about the baptism of the Philippian jailer and his household. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.16 that he baptized Stephanus and his household. Um, This household idea continues over into the New Testament. Who are to receive the signs and seals of initiation into the covenant? Believers and their children. Uh, We don't know what God is doing in the heart of anyone that we baptize. We baptize on the basis of his word. Um, And I loved the Reformed theologian, Herman Bobbing, who said, you know, when we baptize children, we actually baptize them on a better word. Because he said, when we baptize a believer, we baptize them because they've come to us and said, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's a good word. And we baptize them on the basis of that word. But he said, you know, we actually baptize our children on a better word. Because the Lord Jesus Christ comes to us and says about our children, The kingdom is theirs, and the promise is theirs, and they are holy. That's a better word. That's God's word. And so we act on God's word, and we baptize our children, and then we teach them for the rest of their lives that God has put a claim on their lives, and that that sacrament is to be combined with faith, that they're to respond in faith to what God has done for them. We don't know what God is doing in the heart, but we act on the basis of his word. 
and we remind everyone that's been baptized that God has said to you, I will be your God and you will be my people. That's why I love that Article 34 says, baptism has an effect not just when the water is on you. It has an effect that you carry with you for the rest of your life. Because you can think back to your own baptism and be reminded that just as surely as water washes away dirt from the body and water was applied to me, so I can know that the blood and spirit of Christ will make me new and wash away my sin, will purify my soul. That's just as real now as it was when you had the water put on you. It remains true now and forever. And so we, we call people to faith and repentance and we pray. We should as a church be regularly in prayer for our children. That they would grow up to embrace the promises by faith. Just as we pray for the believing people in our congregation. Because we want the baptized to turn out like Timothy, not like Simon. And we want those baptized as children to turn out like Jacob and not like Esau. Or maybe better than Jacob. Maybe you hold the level a little higher for your children. But what's the end, end result for Jacob? He's remembered as a hero of the faith. Um, so we need to pray for our children. Uh, pray for our believers and to hope in our God who is powerful to do what he's promised, who is a God who can make the dead live and call people out of their graves and do it because he is the Lord and his word will accomplish it. So we're called not just to do these signs, uh, but to do these signs in hope. In hope in the mediator of the new covenant, our Lord Jesus Christ, who secures these blessings and grants us faith by which we part become partakers of them. May we all believe and cling to him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness to us that has begun in Christ before the foundation of the world. We thank you for your electing purposes for those who've called to faith that you sent your son in history to redeem us that we might be adopted into your family and at the right time sent your spirit to us that we might live. We do pray for the children of our church, all those who've received the sign of baptism, that it would never just be a mere outward sign of covenant membership for them, but that you would work in their hearts that faith by your spirit, that they would live in a living and unbroken fellowship with their Lord Jesus Christ, that they would enter into the glory of their Savior at the day you call them. And for we who believe, Lord, we pray that you would preserve us in your grace and continue to watch over us that we might cling to you with faith and put our trust in Christ. And help all of us to think back to that day of baptism, whether we can clearly remember it or whether uh, it happened before we could know, but to remember that there was a time when water was placed on us in Christ's name, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. When you promised to be God to us and to our children after us, where you promised that just as surely as water washes away dirt from the body, so surely will the blood and spirit of Christ wash away the impurity and wickedness of our souls. May we trust your word. And may we glorify your name as the God who's done it. Help us always to hope in Christ. And hear us for we pray in his name. Amen.